0: I want us to watch a couple of minutes of video. This is David Platt introducing this Secret Church series about the Bible and authority. He's going to reference a few statistics. I've printed a few of those on the back of that piece of paper. If you want to look, I haven't printed all of those, but he'll reference a, a Barna study. Those are printed on the back, and then he'll reference a few points, and those are printed on the front, and then we're going to come back and do a Bible study together uh, after we watch these few minutes.
1: All of these things. What I want us to do tonight is consider the word before us and ask these questions tonight. Number one, what level of authority should the Bible have in my life, in your life? Is this just a book to put on the shelf, to be read every once in a while, or is it to be digested, read, studied, memorized, and obeyed every day of my life? Second, what level of authority should the Bible have in the church? Is it just something we reference periodically when the church gathers, or does it drive everything the church does? And then third, what level of of authority does the Bible have in the world? So how does this book relate to people outside the church? Is it only authoritative for us in the church, or is it authoritative for every single person in the world? Which then leads us to think about the world around us and significant trends in the world around us. So, we live in a world of increasing skepticism. So much of this right here comes from a six-year Barna study that I came across that Barna did with the American Bible Society on the changing landscapes of Bible perception and engagement. And based on that study, there's no question that more people have more questions about the origins, relevance, and authority of the Scriptures today in America than they did 50 or 100 years ago, even 5 or 10 years ago. We live in a day of increasing skepticism, a new moral code that rejects external moral authorities. Who are you to say how I should live, what I should do? Who are you to say what's right and wrong? That's up to every one of us to determine on our own a rejection in our day of any external moral authority. And in its place, a reliance on internal moral autonomy. I do what I want to do. I live how I want to live. I define right. I define wrong based on what looks, feels right to me, which is really part of the thrust behind this, this title topic tonight, Scripture and Authority, because to many people today, it seems absolutely ridiculous to submit your life to any authority outside of yourself, much less an antiquated book that was written 2,000 years ago. And then, on a different but related note, a hugely significant trend today is digital access. I think about a a thousand years ago when hardly anybody had a copy of the Bible particularly in their own language. And now the Bible is more accessible than ever before in many parts of the world. Not every part of the world, which we'll talk about, but here in North America, for example, U-Version Bible app that's familiar to many people, and one month alone, one month, people in the U.S. accessed the Bible in 554 languages, pulled up more than half a billion chapters of the Bible on their phone. Followers of Christ a thousand years ago could have never dreamed of having the Bible in their pockets at all times. So the Bible, more accessible to many people than ever before, but at the same time, everything else is more accessible than ever before. So there's a lot of competition for our attention. We pull up our phones, are we drawn to the Bible or to a million other things that vie for our attention? believe Bible study and teaching are needed for spiritual growth. That's pastors of churches. So you look at all this and you start to realize that the number of people who actually believe the Bible in America is decreasing fast, and they're increasingly viewed as crazy, offensive, even dangerous. So is it crazy, offensive, even dangerous to believe this, this book? Or is it dangerous not to believe this book? These are questions we need to ask in light of common objections around us that we must consider. Many say, well, the Bible's a human invention. And I put verses here that speak to these objections so you'd have them to go back and look through after this. But these are the kinds of objections we're going to walk through all tonight. The Bible's a human invention. The Bible has dangerous implications. This book is talking about hell and judgment for people who live certain ways, 2 Thessalonians 1. The Bible's offensive. And I put Genesis 1-1 here because I believe that's the most offensive verse in the entire book which we usually don't think that way. You look around our culture today, it'd be increasingly common for the Bible's teachings on social issues, for example, be seen as offensive. It's offensive to an ever expanding number of people to say that a woman who has feelings for another woman shouldn't express love for her in marriage. So it doesn't take long for a Christian today to be backed into a corner on that issue, not wanting to be offensive, wondering how to respond. This is where we need to realize that a biblical view of homosexuality, for example, is not the greatest offense in Christianity. It's nowhere close to the greatest offense in Christianity. Christianity's offense begins with the very first words of the Bible, in the beginning God. The initial offense of the Bible is that there is a God who is the creator of all things, who alone has the right to say how we should live, and every single one of us will give an account to Him. The authority of God booms across the first sentence of the Bible, which is a direct offense to the autonomy of man who says, I'm the master of my own fate, I'm the captain of my own soul. The Bible says otherwise. Others say the Bible is outdated. The Bible is out of touch with moral norms in the 21st century, the way it talks about the greedy or drunkards, those who practice homosexuality, not going to heaven. That's outdated. The Bible's full of errors. Here's just one example. We'll dive into it later. But Second Samuel 24 9 talks about a census. Or you had in Israel 800,000 men, and the men of Judah 500,000, but then parallel account of the story in 1 Chronicles 21, we read in all Israel there were 1,100,000, not 800,000 like we saw there before, and in Judah 470,000 who drew the source. So is that an error in the Bible? And if that's an error, who are, who's to say that there's not all sorts of other errors in the Bible? So the Bible's full of errors. The Bible's full of fiction. I mean, are you serious? You really believe a guy spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, then he prayed, and the fish spit him out? You believe that? You've got to be kidding. The Bible's full of fiction. Two more the Bible's insufficient for the church, which many Christians and pastors wouldn't say, at least out loud, but there was a day when worship services were filled with the Word of God. And now. By our lack of, we won't dive into all these quotes, this quote from Kaiser, basically talking about pastors who just pull their sermon material from a plethora of recovery and pop psychology books that fill our Christian bookstores. You listen to much contemporary so-called preaching in the church today, it looks a lot like we don't believe the Bible is sufficient for the church. Then finally, based on all the above, the Bible is irrelevant in the world. To quote from the study, in a society that venerates science and rationalism, it's an increasingly hard pill to swallow that an eclectic assortment of ancient stories, poems, sermons, prophecies, and letters written and compiled over the course of 3,000 years is somehow the sacred Word of God. So all of these common objections that lead us to critical questions we must answer. I, I want to answer these in my own life. Like, I don't want to base my life, my family, my future, my eternity— on a fictional book full of errors invented by men 2,000 years ago. I want to answer these questions about the Bible for my own life. I'm assuming tonight we all want to answer these questions. So one, is the Bible divine, or did humans create it? And each of these questions in a sense builds on the previous one. So is the Bible divine, meaning is it from God, or did humans make this up? And answering that question, it's helpful to ask, is the Bible true? Can we trust it? Can we know that what is written in this book is true? And even if it's true, then third question is the Bible clear? Can we understand it? Even if it's true and from God, if it's not clear, if we can't understand it, then there's nothing we can do with it. If it's clear, then is the Bible sufficient? Is it the only book we need? Or is it one among many books that we need to look at in our lives? And then finally, even if the Bible's divine, true, clear, and sufficient, I want to know is the Bible good? Is it worth giving our lives for? So, our plan for the.
0: All right, so we're going to stop right there with that, that introduction, um, and continue to build on that. But those are questions people ask. What sort of authority should the Bible have in our lives? What sort of sort of authority should the Bible have in the church? As we talk about that, when you look at culture, you look at society, if someone doesn't turn to the Bible as a source of authority, what are the other sources of authority in our world? What do you see? Where, where do you see people turning as opposed to the Bible, for authority. I'm not fishing for anything. This is discussion time, so. Sure, other religious books, yeah. Well, hey, you know, there's lots of religious books out there, so the Bible doesn't have authority because it's just one among many. What about this book and this book, yeah. Science, absolutely, yeah, so. If I, I want something that's observable, that's measurable, that, you know, is never wrong, because science is never wrong, and so you turn to, you know, that, that idea, so. Government, government yeah. Self. self, yeah, that's what Platt was talking about on the screen, just the authority of self, me, myself, and I, the great trinity, uh, that, that I, I lay down the law, I, let's think through that really quickly what what's so wrong with self being the ultimate authority where does that where does that break down what's your response to somebody on that yeah there's definitely no absolute truth you know the fact that you believe what you want to believe i'll believe what i believe you do what you do i'll do what i do Yeah, you know, and even if someone doesn't believe in the concept of sin, generally when we look inside of our own mind <laughs> and our own heart, I mean, if I'm my own authority, and I know what a head case I can be, you know, I just think about, do I really want to shape my own life? Is this, is this really the direction? And, and so, yeah, you have to have a pretty high view of yourself to say, I, I want to, you know, guide my own life. Yes, yeah, yeah yeah we'll accomplish out of a speeding ticket if you're your own authority so it's worth a shot you know you could always say that see, see what happens so use all possible options at that point you know another question um based on your experience why do you think people in our culture find it difficult to believe that scripture is authoritative why do people struggle with that in our in our culture what's what's led to some of that Yeah, so that idea of am I, most people when they say they don't believe in God, a lot of times that phrase, I don't believe in God, is more of an idea, I don't want to believe that I'm responsible to anyone or anything else. Um, It's not always just this, I don't believe a supernatural being exists, it's more of, because what he was saying about Genesis 1-1, Those initial verses, in the beginning God created, if God created, he's also the judge. So the creator is the judge, and that's the dangerous point. You know, it's one thing to have a creator, it's another thing to have a judge. Uh, Why else do people struggle with the Bible being authoritative? Yes, we we all resist, we resist somebody else telling us what to do. Say again. Yeah, that's kind of the one I was thinking of. I wonder how much of that plays in. Now, sometimes, admittedly, that can be an excuse for someone. But I do think that when you look across our culture, the, the line of thought is if that book is meant to shape those people who follow it and their lives look like this, honestly, why would I have anything to do with that, with that book? um you know and so some of the authority that scripture might have is is cut out just because of how we we live and present ourselves sometimes right the idea of tolerance yeah what role does does that play yeah um are those the most common objections in your workplace, among family? Are those the objections you hear to Scripture? Is there anything else? What are the objections you hear to Scripture? People you, people you know and are around. So that gets into an interesting point we've almost we're not quite there we've almost reached a place in our culture it's one thing for the bible to be argued with or someone to say that's not true it's another step for it to not matter um so when you go from something's not true to it's irrelevant then the debate doesn't even matter like nobody wants to debate because you've crossed over from debating to it's, it's off my radar um and I think just uh, looking into the future of being a Christian in our in our world, in our church, the biggest battle we'll face in the future is not debating someone, it's just gonna be getting them to care at all. Um, and that's a that's a whole nother animal <laughs> how you how you approach that, you know. Yeah, Tom. It's a starting, Yeah, it's a different starting point when you have a conversation with someone. So uh, there's not that Bible background. There's not that Bible literacy. Less and less people have a story that starts with, well, I grew up in church, and then I moved away from church. You're getting more stories of, well, I never had that, had that to begin with. And, and we don't, I'm not saying any of this in a judgmental sense. I'm saying we have to look at ourselves and say, okay, if we believe the Bible— and you're talking to someone who has no foundation, that changes the way that you approach that, that conversation. Um, so how do we begin to, to think about this? I want to begin in John chapter 1 for the next 15 minutes, the 15, 20 minutes we have left. We're going to go to, to John chapter 1. What we're trying to establish today uh, is that foundation of Scripture's authority. Where do we see that at play? How do we talk about this issue, this issue of authority? And so we're going to start in, in John chapter 1. The reason being is it plays off that idea that David shared in the video about in the beginning God created. So Genesis 1. John 1 starts in that same framework. It's it's backing up there. So John chapter 1 verse 1 In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now that's the uh, idea of word there that God has made Himself known, um, and so in the beginning, God's word is at work, and we're going to find out really quickly that word here equals Christ. That there's this relationship, and so in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So when we experience God's word, we're not experiencing. Uh, any uh, separation from who God is, his character. So his character is given to us in his word. We're able to know him. So as the word of God speaks, it's the character of God speaking into, into our world. And it gives life. All things were made through him. Through the word of God, things come into being. God speaks, things happen. God's word comes, things happen. Which is good to know when you talk about that authority, um, that when God speaks, when God's word comes into a situation, we don't have to give it authority. It comes with the authority of God. Now, someone may not receive that, but we're able to speak as if it has the authority of God because that's how God has, has established it. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. So it's meant to be Uh, It's meant to contrast with the darkness of the world, and it's not going to be defeated. We don't have to approach it wondering, will God's word survive, will God's word endure? We know that it will, we will. So verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. These verses are thrown in there to help us understand the difference between human authority and divine authority, authority. So John 1 is establishing this foundation of God's word bringing life to the world through Christ. So it's forming that. He's making a very clear distinction between the witness to the word and the word itself. Uh, and this is one of those things where The caution is that if any person, any human stands up and says, thus saith the word of the Lord, and it's not represented in Scripture, we know it's not the word of the Lord. That we as humans don't give divine revelation. That that comes comes from God. And so if anyone stands up and says, I'm giving a word of God, and it doesn't match Scripture, that immediately becomes a, a foundation there. But we also know that John was very clear that I must become... Or he must become greater, I must become less. And so his whole life was about pointing people to Christ, not drawing people to himself. So a witness to the word is not trying to be the word. he's trying to point people that direction, both through the way that they speak and the way that they live. So John, the reason that we have verses 6 through 8 is to remind us that distinction between God's word given to us and who we are supposed to be as witnesses to that word. Then you get to verse 9 the true light which gives light to everyone was coming in to the world one of the things we note from verse 9 about god's word is that it's meant to be available to everyone that this is not a book this is not a message that was only intended for a select group of people that god has made himself known to everyone Sometimes we 'll talk about the difference between general revelation and specific revelation, general revelation that God has made himself known to all people through creation, through our conscience, through gifts like that, specific revelation being the Word of God that's been given, and so but it 's meant to be made available to everyone. Uh, there was a time that certain religious leaders would try to keep god 's people from having access to the scriptures they didn 't want the people of God to have access to the scriptures, but It's really clear. It was meant for for everyone. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. There's an amazing contrast that the author intends between the end of verse 9 and the end of verse 10. So the end of verse 9 says that the light has been given to everyone and is coming into the world. The end end of verse 9. The end of verse 10 says, says yet the world did not know him so when people don't receive the word of god as authoritative it's not a surprise because we look in every one of our hearts and we understand what that rebellion looks like we understand what that resistance looks like we understand what it means to struggle with that and so we're told early on that just because the word of god has come doesn't mean that immediately everybody is going is going to receive it so verse 11 he came to his own And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So those who do receive him find that life, are given that new life through the word of God, through Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Verse 14. The Word became flesh. We were able to experience, able to access, able to see. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we experience God's Word, it brings authority because it's the glory of God shining into the world. And what does that look like? It looks like grace, and it looks like truth. This is that point that I think you get to the phrase that makes the most sense in our culture today. What does it mean that God's word comes with authority and it's able to bring both grace and truth? That if you're able to hold those two together, you find the true power of God's word. And I think you find the point, I think you find the point that people in our culture especially are able to be most receptive, are able to hear God's word that clears. Because you have some people that always scream about the truth and there's no grace involved. And then you have other approaches to religion that it's, oh don't matter, it doesn't matter, do whatever you want, you're under grace, there's, doesn't matter how you live, just do whatever you want. Well, on one side, you're on your own, go out and do whatever you want. On the other side, you're so constricted, you're living under so many don'ts, so many rules, that there's no life to be found. But if somehow we can hold together those ideas of grace and truth, we begin to find what it means for God to bring life to our world. We begin to find what it means for God's word to have authority in in our lives. Who do you see in the world around you? And you could talk probably about general groups of people, but those ideas of grace and truth being held together, how do you see that being played out? So maybe in where you live, maybe where you work, maybe in your family, how can we hold those two ideas together? Uh, let's finish the rest of these verses down through 18, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. So end of 14, the word came in glory, bringing grace and truth. has made him known. Uh, so we are able to know God's grace and truth through Jesus Christ, through the word of God, and that's what we want to communicate to the world around us. Um, let me pray for us and, and we'll wrap up tonight. God, I pray this. we think about our own lives, where we are with our, our families, uh, as we think about our workplaces, as we think about our home life, God, all these situations, reminded what it is for you to have authority in our lives that we would remember in the beginning god that you are creator you are judge but you are also father and f- father that we would know what it is to experience your grace that in our moments of pain and our moments of sin and our moments of despair that we would know your goodness that we would know your love your forgiveness God, that we'd be overwhelmed by your grace that just comes and rescues us. And God, that we would also not lose sight of your truth, that you are the one who leads us along the path that is life-giving, the path that leads to eternal life, that we don't live according to our own rules, we live according to the way that you have laid out, but we do that out of that relationship of grace. And God, I pray that that grace and truth would flow through us, that people around us wouldn't be driven away from your word because of our lives, but God, that they would be so uh, curious about that combination of grace and truth, that they would be drawn to your word, drawn to your authority, that they would know you as creator and judge and ultimately as father. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.